Um, Mark alluded to it, and I'm going to reiterate, um, unbeknownst to Ken and Mark and I, uh, we did not coordinate, but you're going to hear, they did it much better, but uh, the third time you're going to hear the same sermon, basically. Um, uh, there is no coincidences. I, we know that God coordinated, so um, that was one instance. The other is that um, when Jared first asked uh, for volunteers to preach, uh, I, when I said I would, my mind automatically went to one of my favorite passages, Acts 2, 42 to 47. Uh, it's there that we find the first, first mention, really, of the church. Um, and again, unbeknownst to me, Bob Glasscock, when he preached last week, did the passage immediately preceding, Acts 2, 27 to 41. So um, when Bob closed, he closed with a question uh, that was asked by the 3,000, uh, what must I do to be saved? And today, uh, we are going to answer, to me at least, the next logical question after they were saved, I'm saved, what must I do? Now, I know from years of, uh, of serving the Lord that as soon as I use the word words, must do, legalism antennas go up. So, I need to give the disclaimer up front that we are not talking about salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We can't be good enough. There are not any good works we can do. And if you think back to what Bob preached last week, you had the 3,000. Peter preached at Pentecost. They were added to the ranks of the saved. What did they do before that? The answer is nothing. Peter told them, repent and be baptized. So there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Now, if you're already saved and you hear the words must do, that kind of calls to, mind the uh, the, calls to mind that maybe I can earn favor somehow. And I'm here to tell you, you cannot earn favor with God. He saved you. He'll keep you. Um, there's, again, nothing we can do, nothing, nothing that we are earns favor with God. However, it raises the question, okay, I'm saved, I'm justified, I live my life until glorification when I'm taken to be with Jesus and made perfect. What do I do with this time? Well, the scripture gives us some ideas of, of what there are some expectations on our time, on our lives, uh, when we commit to being a disciple of Christ. So today that's what we're going to look at. Um, I think Paul summed it up well in, in uh, Romans 12, 1. You're going to hear this verse every time I speak. It's not because it's the only one I know, but it really impacts me. Uh, Paul says, in light of the great mercy that he's shown us, we should offer ourselves, submit ourselves, and our service to him. And it's a reasonable act of service. So we're saved and we do these things as an act of worship to him. Again, so we, one more time, I, I need to reiterate, I don't want the ears to close because you, you automatically think legalism. I just ask you simply to... Uh, to stay tuned in, hear with spirit-enabled ears, um, that this is not something we do to earn our salvation or to keep it. <coughs> Excuse me. But there are some um, expectations on our life. So again, the simple answer, I think it's a simple to understand, difficult to do sometime. What's expected of us is to grow into the fullness of Christ, the in image of the invisible Christ. What does that look like? Well, it involves character, right? Integrity, fruits of the Spirit. You think of in, uh, in those lines, 
of who Christ is. We want to develop into the nature of Christ, but we also think in terms of worship and glorification of God and the mission of Christ. If you think, keep those two things in mind today at the front of your, your forethoughts, worship of God and mission of Christ, I think we'll be okay. I think at the end you'll agree with me. So um, one of the, there are several ways God uses to do that. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit is in charge of, for lack of a word, better word, of our sanctification. He is the one that is going to sanctify us. However, in light of God's economy, he's also choose, chosen the one another's to help with that process as well, the church. So today we're going to look at how that happens. How does God accomplish this? Now, the title I, I really wanted to use Instead of this, this just fit on the bulletin. I'm saved, what must I do? This is what I really wanted to do. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to uh, an abbreviated form though. How many have been to an amusement park? You're gonna recognize this, right? You, you climb into the ride, they buckle you up, they strap you down, and then they tell you for your safety, please remain seated at all times. Please keep your arms and legs, hands and feet inside of the ride at all times. Uh, these rides are meant to be enjoyed. They're a passive enjoyment. You don't do anything. They don't want you to do anything. They want you to sit and enjoy the ride. Well, this morning, uh, I'm going to contrast that with what it means to be a part of the church. Again, I'm saved. What must I do? I think a picture is worth a thousand words. I, I don't even really need to tell you this. The not sign tells you that the church is not meant to be enjoyed passively. I don't want you to remain seated at all times. Well, maybe this morning. Um, but it, it requires us to get up and be the hands and feet of Christ. So, uh, again, this morning we're going to contrast that and what's meant to be the church. Now, before we answer that question, we're going to look at uh, progression uh, from the book of Luke. Uh, and uh, honestly, the whole book, or book of Acts written by Luke, the, the whole book can be summed in, in one verse, Acts 1.8, and Luke writes, but you will receive power and ability when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Often there's a misunderstanding of what the power and ability is. Now, God can do amazing things. I believe he's still doing miracles. But Luke writes, via the Holy Spirit, that the power comes upon us for one purpose. You will be my witnesses. And then it proceeds to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's a threefold uh, manifestation of the book of Acts. Salvation comes to Jerusalem. Chapter 8, the disciples face persecution. The, uh, the gospel spreads to Judea and Samaria. And then we find at the final movement of the book, Paul taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. So a threefold movement. But within that, in these first two chapters, we see another movement that, that Luke makes. And that is that at first, the apostles and the disciples, power will come upon you. So the disciples are walking with Jesus. Jesus ascends. The disciples are sent out with the mission. At Pentecost, people are being saved and the Holy Spirit's being given. And then what we're going to look at today is that third movement. The church consists of those Holy Spirit converts. So... Jesus has risen, appeared to the disciples. 
um, given them a command to be his witnesses. They, in turn, as Bob pointed out last week, uh, go and preach the message. And then, as Bob noted again, um, 3,000 people were saved. That's where we pick up. 3,000 people were saved. What do we do with them? If 3,000 people were saved in Culpeper today and they walked through these doors, we'd ask the same question. What do we do with them? Um, again, so the three movements there. Uh, one final thing I really want to look at before we dive into the passage is um, these, these new converts, they're Holy Spirit-filled. These are disciples. These are disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. So everything that they do is focused on Christ-centered focus on Jesus. What did he teach? What did he do? How does that change us? So with all that in mind, let's go to our passage. Would you stand up as we read? So Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You you can sit. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, as we dive into this passage, uh, Father, I I pray that uh, you do two things, that you would open our ears and prepare a fertile field. Um, Lord, that you would Take away any resistance. Be good Bereans and check what I say, but not resist the work of the Spirit. Lord, I I lift up the children's church because as we learn today the devotion to the Apostles' Word, um, I pray for the teachers, that they teach well, that they lead these children to love Christ more. Uh, And as we learn today, and the same prayer for this body as the children's church, Lord, just that we would be changed, not just um, learn more, but be changed by what we hear. Um, Lord, that we be like, um, not be like your words in James, where we we leave the mirror and then forget completely. Um, But Lord, that it would have its way with us. So we just commit ourselves to you. We commit this service to you and ask that you move in a mighty way. Amen. So the first question I ask um, is as we opened Acts 2:42, it says they were devoted. Who are the they? Well, that's simply the 3,000 people that Bob referred to at the end of his passage last week. These are the new believers. Um, they, they and the small number of Christ followers that were already in place. Um, we know it's a relatively small number. I can't give you an exact number. So the first church, it's still too large for the apostles, 12 apostles, right, teaching, we'll, we'll say 3,500 people, because I know Christ uh, appeared to at least 500 uh, people. We'll call it 3,500 people. So the teachings of the apostles have, has had to have been codified by that point in time. What, what do I mean? So we know that they taught the 
old, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Um, later, they will have taught the apostles' writings, Peter and Paul and the others. Um, but they also would have been teaching what had been preached. And we have a pretty good idea of what that is because we have Paul's words um, when he tells us he, he sought to know one thing and one thing only, and that's Christ and Christ crucified. Very simple message, um, but then how does that play as well in, in their lives? So Luke is giving us a, a, a brief snapshot of the life of this early church and how those converted at Pentecost worked out their newfound faith in community and the scope and depth of their commitment. Um, they are the, the disciples who comprise this fledgling entity that we call the church. Now, the biblical word for church is ecclesia. Um, it's a really profound word. It means a gathering. So the church is a gathering. In this particular case, it's a gathering of the disciples. It's a very specific gathering of those who claim the name of Christ. So today's message is really a lesson in ecclesiology. You, you didn't think you were theologians, but you are. And today we're going to learn about the church. Um, this ecclesiology, that's all it is, is the study of the church. And in particular, we're going to study this first recorded gathering of the church. The first thing we need to find out, to learn, to accept, is that the church is not a building. It's not a program. It's not an organization. It's the gathering of Christ's disciples. So anytime I speak, I say, good morning, church. And that's intentional because we are the church in this room. We are the ecclesia. We just happen to gather under the name of Providence Bible Church. I was going to give the address. I don't think there's anything given the wrong, wrong with giving the address, but we gather in this building as Providence Bible Church. Oftentimes we say, I hear, we're, I'm going to church. I'm guilty of using that myself. I hope what's meant is I'm going to meet with the disciples at the building we call Providence Bible Church, not that this is the destination I'm going to church. Other times I hear people ask questions like, why doesn't the church do fill in the blank? Or isn't the church going to do, again, fill in the blank? And what I, again, what I hope is being asked or said is, I wonder when the person that God has gifted for that ministry will begin to do what he has gifted them for. Now, we're going to come back to that thought in a, in a minute, but I wanted to make the distinction of what the church is and what it isn't. Okay, so in our passage this morning, we find that the they that is being referred to is, are the, the new believers at the end of uh, 241. Um, and it's, we find out that these new disciples devoted themselves to four things. Well, the first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. Before we get there, what does the word devoted mean? Now, some of you in your translations probably see continued steadfastly or persevered. That means that it's not optional, that they do it when they want to or feel like it. That means that they continued, they did everything they could to persevere in it. Uh, it, it was that important 
that they made sure it got done. Well, the first thing that they did um, is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, again, the apostles' teaching, I think, was obviously centered on the personal work of Christ, first and foremost, um, so they, they would meet together to discuss that and the implications for their, their lives. And again, it's not optional. It's not something to be taken granted, for granted. It was something to be pursued, and it was, uh, it was to be clung to. So I defined disciple. Now I'd like to define discipleship because we're, we're learning the apostles' teaching. We're devo- devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching Um, I think it's, at this point, again, helpful to define discipleship. And it's more than just the transfer of information. It refers to imitating the teacher's life, inculcating his values, and reproducing his teachings. So we learn, we study, we meditate, we learn, we read, and then we imitate. It becomes ingrained in us. It becomes, it, it fills us, it becomes second nature. And then it flows out of us. We reproduce Christ. Again, it's it's more than just a a transfer of information. It it refers to imitating the teacher's life. Uh, This was not unique to Jesus and his disciples. The the Jewish leaders of the time, um, they would do the same thing. They would invite people to follow them. So their followers would imitate the way they walk. They would imitate the cadence of their speech they would fully learn their teachings and they would become their teacher and that's what we're called to do as a Christ follower we're to learn what Christ said have it fill us and we become for all intents and purpose Christ to those who watch us who hear us speak we we inculcate his values we reproduce his teachings Again, that's exactly what the Great Commission is saying. Jesus' call to discipleship is an all-or-nothing summons reaching into every area of our lives. It involves giving him preeminence over the closest of our human relationships and the desires we have for our own lives. The devotion to the apostles' teaching was a result of Jesus' disciples' obedience to Christ's command, again, found in the Great Commission. Now, we probably know the words. I am going to pick up in verse 19 and 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did I leave anything out? I did. Where are my triads? Any of the people in the triads? I wouldn't raise my hand either because you always miss this. This is one of the first verses we memorize, and invariably, invariably, this is the way it comes out. I left out two words. Anybody want to guess? Teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, not just the head knowledge, but the obedience to what they're being taught. The apostles' command from Jesus was to go and teach, and that's what we see in the first verse of our passage this morning. Again, it doesn't end there. It's to be teaching them to obey. The goal is simply not to gain a bunch of head knowledge. It would be wonderful if every one of us could win Bible trivia. 
Every Bible trivia. It would be wonderful. It would be wonderful if we could go on Jeopardy and there was a category, Bible knowledge, and we swept the category. If we could say, Ken, I'll take uh, Bible knowledge for 1600. You just swept the category. That would be wonderful. I think as Christ's disciples, we should know the Word. The Word tells us, learn it, meditate on it, study it, ingrain it. That's wonderful, but it can't stop there. It's, it's just not to learn more about, more about Christ. It's to learn more about, more about Christ so that we learn to love him more, to fall more and more in love with him, and then do the things that he asks of us. Many of us know the relationship between love and obedience. This should be a familiar verse. If you love me, obey me, right? If you love me, obey me. It becomes much easier when we love Christ to, to obey him and do the things that he asks us to do. When I hired on four years ago, um, I, one of the biggest statements I heard, one of the big, biggest uh, things people would say, com most common things people would say to me was, we really need discipleship. And I'll be honest, that statement still perplexes me today as much as it did then. I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea. What do you mean the church needs discipleship? At Providence, I've been in the community for almost 30 years. At Providence has a reputation. Even when I was not here, we knew Providence was, was a biblically-based, solid-teaching church. The Word of God has been and is taught consistently in this church. It's been faithfully preached. There is and has been a small group ministry here. There is and has been adult Bible fellowship Sunday school classes. We have all the means, we have all the pathways for discipleship, so if discipleship is not happening, there's only one thing that that can mean. What's missing? We are. It reminds me of the church meme that you see a lot of times, the sign out on the front of the road, it's, it says, um, what's missing, and it's got C-H, C-H. The answer is you are, disciple. You are. That's the only thing missing. Remember, the, the church is not an organization. It's the people that comprise the church. If there's no discipling going on, it is the church's fault, but not in the way we commonly mean. It means because we're not doing the things we need to do. I can't make you a disciple. I know the position will be up for a vote here soon. I can't make you a disciple, I'll tell you that right now. I can provide the means, the encouragement, and I'm happy to walk along anybody I can, but only you can make a, a disciple. It is disciples who are meant to make disciples. It's the people who gather together in the ecclesia that is to do the work. It's not a, it's not a passive ride, folks. I'm gonna introduce two, uh, two high dollar words. I could have said it simpler, but I like the words, so. The first one is orthodoxy. That just simply means right belief. The other is orthopraxy, and that's right action. But it's right action spurred by right belief. Our study of the apostles' teaching should lead us to right understanding. Look, the scripture is pretty clear. God says, come reason together, let us reason together. Worship the spirit in, worship in spirit and in truth. He wants us to learn. 
He wants us to study. He wants us to get to know him the best we can. But our study should help us understand the person of Christ and the work of Christ. But it can't end there. Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us, to not simply teach them more stuff, but to obey the stuff we already know. Now, we don't just study to know what the Word says. We should study to discover who the Word is. And when we learn who the Word is, we will want to do what the Word asks of us. We must know what God says before we can do what God asks. Again, our goal as disciples and as disciple makers is to glorify Him in every part of our lives, including right belief, but also in right action. In other words, the work of theology is not simply to repeat the language of Scripture, but it's to apply the language of Scripture to our thoughts and our life. Orthodoxy leads directly to orthopraxy. And again, this requires us to get out of the safe confines of the ride and to do the work of pursuing Christ. The question is, how well is the church doing at devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, most surveys are not very kind to the church in the West. For all intents and purposes, we're biblically illiterate. The one record we have of our master's words, our Bibles, is often ignored by those who claim to be his disciples. This in itself explains, helps to explain at least, the woeful condition of the church in the West. I remember the words, uh, they're attributed to Chuck Colson. It could have come from beyond him or before him. But it's the church in this country is 3,000 miles wide, wide and a half an inch deep, and I thoroughly and truly believe that to be true. The U.S. is among the largest populations of professing Christians, but we are always among the lowest percentages when measuring biblical worldview. I read a survey recently that found that only 61% of the evangelical community has read their Bible cover to cover. And frankly, after 30 years, I think that number's high. Also, only about a third of Americans, 35%, say they read Scripture at least once a week, while 45% seldom or never read Scripture. And that's a shame. The Bible tells us this is Psalm 1. Those who love the Lord's teaching and think about those teachings day and night are strong like a tree planted by a river. The tree produces fruit in season and its leaves don't die. Everything they do will succeed. I, I think of Jesus' words in 1010. He came to give not just life, but what? Abundant life. And studies bear this out. A recent study I, I read talked about the benefits of reading the Bible. It was found that those who read less than four times a week experience little to no benefit. But I want you to look at what happens when we, when we read the Bible at least four times a week. This is the study. This isn't me. This looks like abundant life to me. Loneliness decreases 30%. Anger issues decreases 32%. The list goes on. All these negative attributes decrease if we spend four times a week in the, in the scriptures. The one that pertains to our message today, the mission of Christ, sharing your faith goes up 200%. Discipling goes up 230%. Thanks. I can't see it up here without my glasses. I apologize. 
Can you imagine? We, we may or may not see 3,000 people being added. We may not even see people being added daily. That's the Lord's work, as we'll see. But what happens if we share our faith? Sharing our faith goes up 200%. And then inside the building, what happens when we disciple? 230% better. It's no wonder to me why they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, you may have noticed this slide over the last few weeks. I'm very excited about this, um, the Bible reading challenge. We're going to help the entire ecclesia of Providence Bible Church with our Bible reading. We've produced uh, uh, Bible reading sheets for the entire year. Um, Meg was here earlier. She's, she's creating monthly bookmarks with the Bible reading for that month. Um, uh, we're putting together packages for parents to help their kids with, interact with the scriptures, uh, activity sheets, um, study questions, uh, little packets to help families to interact with the scriptures. Um, our, some of our life groups will be walking through the reading and going on a, on a deeper level into the reading. What does it mean? How does it apply? Um, again, we can provide the avenues, provide opportunities uh, to study and apply God's work, word together, but it requires getting out of that ride, folks. At the end of the day, disciple, it's up to you to get up and do the work. And the simple question, are you or will you be devoted to the apostles' teaching, disciple? Well, Luke's first observation, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, leads directly to a second observation. They devoted themselves to prayer. Are you devoted to prayer, disciple? Along with God's word, Prayer is the other major main avenue that we have to commune with God. Now, I know that there's many different ways and times to pray. We pray in our life groups. You can pray at home. There's nothing magical. Um, but the Ecclesia of Providence Bible Church gathers the first and third Wednesdays of each month. The Ecclesia of Providence Bible Church meets at 8.30 to pray for the service. There are opportunities that abound. I know there are extenuating circumstances, work schedules, illnesses, but most of the time it's a priority issue. When I hired in, I admit, I was pretty much overwhelmed by the job, the administrative tasks. Uh, when I would go home, Valerie would have dinner made, and the last thing I wanted to do was move off the couch after I ate. After the first year, though, it became habit. It was comfortable. I didn't want to get up off the couch to come to prayer service on Wednesday evening. It's a priority issue. Once I made the commitment, it becomes easier. You draw closer. We'll come back to that thought. But too often, it's the right priorities, folks. I don't think it's a reasonable question to ask if we're truly devoted to prayer when only 12 to 20 people show up on a Wednesday night. Speaks volumes, I think. Well, not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' teachings and the apostle uh, to prayer, they devoted themselves to one another and to the breaking of bread. During COVID, one of the most often things 
I heard, I heard most often uh, was that we, we need to meet, we can't forsake the assembling of ourselves. And that's a, that's a great thought. Unfortunately, for far too many, this is the, the assembly they're speaking of. This, I submit, is a really shallow understanding of biblical fellowship. It's a great disciple opportunity. It's one of the pathways we offer. But think to yourself, how much interaction, how deeply do I really get to know other people of the ecclesia, of the gathering in this setting? 10 to 15 minutes out in the narthex afterwards? It's a shallow understanding, folks. We are called to deep fellowship with other believers if you are saved by Jesus Christ. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which means participation, communion, and fellowship. Mark explained communion, it's intimate participation. These are all action words. Again, we're called to participate with other believers in the mission of God. I think too many people who call themselves by the name of Christ make no place in their lives for the church. They'll say they're saved, but then make no effort to be with other Christians. They're on the lake for the weekend. And look, nothing wrong with vacation. I love my vacation. I love getting away, but we always make time for church when we're gone. Sleeping in or on the ball field when the ecclesia to which they belong is meeting. Or they're content, this is a recent phenomenon. That's probably always been there, but more prevalent after COVID. Content watching church service on TV. Look, I would rather listen to Jack Hibb than me. I get it, but (laughs) that ignores the purpose of the ecclesia, the fellowship. You can't do that at home sitting on a couch. It's not the same thing as attending fellowship and worship activities with the body of Christ. I I remember when I was driving for a living, uh, I was in Delaware, and I saw a church advertising drive-in church. So it was set up like a drive-in theater where you had speakers out in the parking lot. You never had to go inside. You never had to bother with anybody. You could just sit in your car and listen. And I remember thinking then, how pathetic is that? The scripture is full of one another commands. You can't one another when you don't interact with one another. You can't. It's a, it's a logical impossibility. God has called us pe- uh, to, to be together. He's called his people to be together. In the world in which the writer of Hebrews lived, in order to understand that passage, Christians were facing severe persecution. Many of those Uh, who professed Christ were tempted to turn away from their faith. And they needed those close bonds of fellowship to encourage one another to not give in or to not give up. I'll read the passage, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our fellowship should be for a specific purpose. When we're together, we should motivate one another to love and good works. We should encourage one another. I I know last week, Mark, before the uh, fellowship meal, in his prayer, he said, when you get together, don't talk about sports, don't talk about the weather, don't talk about jobs. Talk about scriptural things. Talk about Christ and the work he's done in your life. That's how it happens. That's fellowship, participating, communing with one another. 
There's a couple in this church, they asked me not to use their name because they didn't want attention drawn to myself. And I, when they said that, I'll, I'll honor their request, but I thought, how sad that what should be the norm is the exception and drawing attention to them would be an embarrassment to them. They open their house almost every Sunday. If you've been invited, you know who I'm talking about. Every Sunday, almost, they open their house for a meal and they discuss, yeah, fellowship. They discuss their lives. They deepen and encourage one another in Christ. Again, it shouldn't be something extraordinary. But those of you who have participated, you know the value. You know the value of that. Honestly, I, Valerie and I have talked. I feel convicted. We're going to start doing that. You're going to get start getting invitations. Uh, that's been a failure on our part, and it shouldn't be so. It's mentioned that the believers were together in both, and I use that word, they were together in verse 44 and verse 46. In, in verse 44, together meant that the believers were in the same physical location. They were in the same place. In verse 46, it means they were of the same mind. They were united in thought. And it occurs to me, the best way, maybe the only way, that we can be of the same mind is to be together. <laughs> right? With our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The best way to develop bonds of trust and peace is to fellowship with one another. And then you add in persistent intercessor, intercessory prayer for one another. Again, you have the ingredients for a church that will overwhelm the gates of hell. And that's what Christ said would happen. But it requires that devotion to one another, to the word and to prayer. So, as we teach and learn and pray and serve, uh, we should be of the same mind. A simple question, when we gather, is our mind focused on the same goal? We should be set on glorifying and worshiping God. We ought to be set on exalting Him and experiencing His presence and grace together. We should be focused on His mission. But are we more focused on other things when we fellowship? Well, I mentioned the bi-monthly fellowship meals, which are an awesome way to get to know someone. Uh, it's a funny thing about Christians. We've helped out in the, uh, the warming shelter locally for several years in the past, and um, typically our, our small group would go. Uh, the whole idea is to, to mingle with the residents and share the gospel. But you know what Christians do? We did a really good job of talking to one another, not so much thinking missionally. Anyway, I, I see that at our, and I'm guilty again, oftentimes. We sit with who we know, we sit with who we like, um, and that's fine to an extent. We can encourage one another doing that. But how much better to get to know the rest of the ecclesia as we sit and talk and share a meal. One of the other means we have to share our lives with each other is in our community life groups. These are not merely Bible studies. The Bible is important. But what's more important is it's a place where we can go to develop deeper relationships. It's there that we're prayed for. It's there that we're able to share the deepest needs of our lives, to find encouragement with other believers, 
maybe get some practical advice from somebody that's walked that road. Somebody's going to hear me say Bible study is not important. That's not the case. Bible study is important as we gather a right understanding of Christ to internalize, to produce Christ-like behavior. So it's important. But this, the purpose of these groups is to have that ability to internalize, to, to chew on, to digest, and then to apply what we learn. The second avenue that we have is the avenue of ministry. Like many of you, my deepest friendships over the years are those who I've served shoulder to shoulder with, either in the church, mission trips, wherever, focused on Christ and the mission, working side by side, my deepest friendships. That's a, a tremendous way um, to experience deep fellowship with fellow believers. I love 1 Corinthians 12. And again, my triads will know these things. Chapter 20 in the triad book. Um, we find a reminder that while Mark pointed this out, we are a body made up of many parts. The many parts make the whole. The whole cannot function properly unless each individual member does their part. Jesus, we know scripturally, is the head of the church. Head means he has the authority and he is the source of life. Somehow, I don't know how it works exactly. Jesus is the head. We are the body. We're fused together. You think of Paul at his moment of salvation. Paul, Paul, why do you persecute who? This can be obviously participation. I won't get sad. Why do, you why do you persecute me? And then we think Matthew 25, when you've done it for the least of them, these my brothers, you've done it for me. Somehow, the body of Christ is identified as Christ himself. So Christ is the head, the source of life, and the source of authority. We're the body. And it makes sense in a physical body. If your head is not sending the right signals to your, the rest of your body, or the body is not participating. I've had sciatic nerve problems. I can tell you when your back hurts and your leg doesn't work properly, you're, you're sort of, um, you're not operating on all cylinders. It's, uh, it's debilitating. The same is true in the spiritual body. If the body is not, either not receiving the signal well, or it's just got its heels dug in and won't do, the entire body does not operate properly. We are one body made of many parts. Many parts make the body. So the following verses build a, an insurmountable case, um, disciple, that if you are doing your part, you're, if you're not doing your part, uh, quite honestly, and I don't know a way to say this um, subtly, you are either depilitating the body or you're in sin, maybe both. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Verse 18, but that is, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So God has created a unique you. He's uniquely gifted you 
He's uniquely placed you in the body. He's given you a unique role to play. The question is, will you be obedient disciple to fulfill the unique part for which he has created you and placed you in the body? Are you willing to commit to deep fellowship with one another? Uh, I'm going to single Christy out this time. Um, we prayed for the children's ministry. She's hurting for, for help. She's, she's short teachers. Nursery, one side of the nursery is closed. You may not be good with kids, but if you are, if you're a gifted teacher, it's not just child care. We're training up these kids in the apostles' teachings. We're teaching them to learn to live, uh, love Christ more, to become good disciples in their own right. Maybe you've got a different gifting or a passion. Uh, most of the ministries we have, there's usually one person running around like a chicken with their head cut off that could use help. You're gifted, created uniquely, placed uniquely for a purpose. Maybe there's not even a ministry started yet, but you have a passion for it. Find out what God created you for, disciple, and do it. So, as I close up a little bit, when it comes to following Jesus, we've got to have the same attitude of dedication that was described in Acts 2, 42 to 47. Verse 47 tells us that every day the Lord added those who were being saved to the group of believers. Again, is, is that true of the churches you know about? Hardly. It may be the case in parts of the church worldwide. While Christianity increases, the, the growth is centered in Africa and the Latin countries for the most part. The West is dying. We're declining. And while it specifies that the Lord was adding to the souls, to the ecclesia, it also says that the early church had favor with all people. What does it mean to have favor with all people? What does it take to have favor with all people? First, it means we interact with others. But think of your own life. What, what gives someone favor in your eyes? It's acts of service. It's kind words, being an encouragement. Obviously, the practices of these early disciples, the corporate rhythms that they employed and enjoyed, played a large role in the favor, or it's doubtful that Luke would have recorded them this way. And again, we have to ask whether this description of the church in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is descriptive or prescriptive. And by that, what I mean is, does it just describe what they did, or does it say you must do it in this way? Well, it's certainly descriptive, right? I mean, it tells us what they devoted themselves to, uh, tells, them, tells us what they did about their, their church rhythms, the corporate rhythms, apostles teaching, prayer. They obviously shared meals together. Uh, they were one mind, unified, supporting each other with gifts um, materially. They, um, they had communion together, the Lord's fellowship meal. Um, I don't think I'd go so far as to call it prescriptive. For example, it doesn't tell us about church polity, church leadership, 
Bible talks about that in other places. This, this passage does not. It doesn't tell us the liturgy, the order of service that they followed, or who, who did the preaching. So I, I don't think it's prescriptive by any means. However, if we look at the results, I believe if we want to be as successful as the early church, we should seriously considering doing what the early church did. Again, Luke's not celebrating the church for its own sake. The church then and now exists as a practical, lived outworking of Christ's mission to bring salvation to the world, embodied in a spirit-empowered community. It's quite simple. This is my opinion. If we want to see God do what he did, perhaps we should do what the first church did. We say we want to see God work in the same way he worked then. The question is, disciple, are we willing to be devoted in the same way that the church was then? I'm afraid when we talk about discipleship, we don't often practice it. We talk about it, but we don't often do it. Now, you may be thinking that I'm being unduly harsh. Uh, I admit I, I've wrestled with that thought over the weeks as I prepared. Um, and again, if you think that I'm being legalistic or harsh, though, I'll, I'll leave you with one final thought. Now, earlier we walked through the Great Commission, but I picked up intentionally at verse 19. I, I left off verse 18. <clears throat> course, we, we read that we are to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Well, you may think I'm being harsh or legalistic, but verse 18 gives us the reason why we should do this. This is Christ speaking. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. I had a I won't say who it was, an individual, former Navy. Uh, we had heard a sermon, and uh, this passage was brought up, and he said, I'm not going to do it just because I was told to do it. You do realize, disciple, that if you say that, if that's your attitude, you're telling Jesus, I'm not doing what you told me to do. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. A true disciple, as I close, will want to do what their master says to do. And if we claim to be his, we will be obedient to what he has called us to be and to, for the purposes that he's laid out for us. Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Lord God, <clears throat> maybe some hard things to hear this morning. Um, Lord, I just pray that they fell on sensitive ears. Holy Spirit, um, help those who are already doing these things to not take offense. Uh, Lord, if there's a conviction that maybe something needs to change, I, I pray that that would be heeded. Uh, so, Lord, we just give thanks for this morning and your word. We love you. We want to do the things that you ask of us to be true disciples, seeking to please our master. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.